Welcome to Bible Idiots, the teaching platform for Pastor Chris Danielson. And today, Chris is going to take us to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, in this message entitled Jesus and the Purpose of the Church, Chris is going to take us through scriptures to show us what the purpose of the church is, what that looks like, and the potential consequences when we forget and even abandon the purpose that we are called to. So, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Here's Pastor Chris Danielson with Jesus and the purpose of the church. Today, we're going to talk about the purpose of the church. And I just want you to know that the title is called Jesus and the Purpose of the Church. And, we're, and so open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going today. And we're going to talk about the church at Ephesus. But we will get to our text in a little while. Don't worry, I won't forget it, okay? But I want to start by sharing some things about disciples and discipleship in ancient times. See, among Bible Christians, the topic of discipleship occupies an important place. There's a certain level of consciousness that those who are saved are not saved only to be believers, but also disciples. So, I mean, the term, the usage, disciple and discipleship, is so very common in church circles that it's kind of a term that I think we think should be self-evident. But it's not a lot of times. See, even though Bible folks adopted these terms, they existed in Jewish culture in Jesus' time. In other words, Christians didn't invent discipleship, Jews did. Hence, if we truly want to understand what discipleship is and what the context behind the word is, we need to understand it in the original context. Make sense? So what we find is this idea of discipleship, which is receiving and passing on godly teaching, was well known and emphasized and, get this, hugely valued in the Jewish world. This tradition of teaching was formed and shaped by rabbis having access to the absolute best and the absolute brightest. Follow? Have you ever wondered why, when Jesus was calling the disciples, they dropped everything and followed him? I mean, like literally followed him from that moment. Think about it for a minute. What was going on where a rabbi comes and says, you follow me, and they all drop their stuff, their daily life, their current situation, snap, just like that. Was it because Jesus had this incredible presence when he called his 12 that he overpowered them? No, that wasn't it. But I've always believed that it's common in, you know, it's common in appearance as Jesus is, is said to have be. There was something special about him. He had an it factor. He had a presence. So much that I've always felt that if he would have come at a time when there were, you know, he had to come at a time when there were no recording devices, no photographs or anything, because his presence is so powerful, we would worship those things. But the calling of the disciples did not have that element. So maybe it was this special spirit of God that came over them when the Son of God said, you follow me. No. Although Jesus may have had a little bit unorthodox in the way he called each of his 12, there is so much more to the story, and I want you to get that grasp before we get too far today. See, I want you to look for a minute at the cultural reality that goes over many Christians' heads and did for me for, for a long time. See, in that culture... 
rabbis would have disciples. They'd have followers. And so a young man to be called out to be a disciple of a top rabbi was the greatest thing that could happen to a person in that day, in that culture. It would be on par with being drafted first round in the NFL in our world. And I got to be honest, I don't even think that analogy does justice to what was happening. In other words, it's hard to overstate how big of a deal this was. In fact, as young men were progressing, every one of them would be hoping to be called by a rabbi to be a disciple. But only the best and the brightest got to do that. So many parents would prepare their kids for what life would be if you don't get called to be a disciple. Are you, are you tracking? This is big doings. So now think of James and John. As they just drop their nets, they leave their dad sitting there and they gone. And their dad is thrilled. Have you ever wondered why the father of James and John was so readily, easily going to lose his boys to the family fishing business? And he was cool with it? And then how outrageous it would have been for a rabbi like Jesus to call a tax collector like Matthew. It shocked everyone, including Matthew. They were not anticipating they were going to get this opportunity. Jesus lived in a deeply religious culture that highly valued biblical understanding. Rabbis were just generally respected, and to be a disciple of a famous rabbi was an honor among honor of young men. Nothing topped it in the culture. Rabbis were expected not only to have this vast knowledge of the scriptures, but to show through their lives how they lived out the scriptures. A disciple's goal was to gain the rabbi's knowledge but even more importantly, and don't miss this today, to become like him in character. It was expected that when the disciple became mature, they would take their rabbi's teaching to the community, add their own understanding, and raise up disciples of their own. That's the dealio. And so when our calling and our purpose is to go and make disciples, we need to understand it is much more than just conversions. I mean, that's always a good place to start with good old-fashioned evangelism, but our purpose as a church is much greater than that. It's to pursue more knowledge than the Bible, more, more knowledge of the Bible and all throughout the Bible, more than just understanding doctrine, more than just understanding doctrine and dogma and the other mumbo-jumbo, although those are great things. I love them. I spend most of my week in those things, but that's not the point. The point is to be like our rabbi, our savior, in character. Okay, so let me give you all three points today before we even get to our text. I'm just going to put them up on the screen, and then we're going to talk about it. The purpose of the church, three things define it, and only three. God's glory, making disciples, and to preserve and bless the community in which you live. And by the way, that third one is worldwide. Every small Bible church in any town in America can bless missionaries across the globe. And when you're about God's glory and you're about making disciples, everybody's in play. Everybody's in play that makes a difference for the kingdom. And we're attracted to those of us who are what some would call like-minded, but really it's all in the character of Jesus that we're pursuing, those of us who are soundly saved. So that's it. Everything since I walked here in day one has gone through that lens. Everything. 
You know, I get a little excited about number three when we have a commercial kitchen here and we have somebody like Ross who has this heart and everything. I just want to continue to see it go and grow. But I don't want to get out in front of the team too far. But we are that in Harlan, Iowa. With the Grounds Coffee Shop, with how we are, with everything that we are, we try to bless and preserve our community. And you guys have been doing that for a long time. And I'm thrilled to be a part of it. But if we're not glorifying God and we're not making disciples, we're not really the church. We're something else. So with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to the church at Ephesus. We know Paul did some incredible work there. But you know about John the Apostle? John was at Ephesus, the gospel writer. No living person had ever witnessed and seen what John witnessed, in my opinion. Let's do the math. He was a young man when he met Jesus many years earlier. And if you remember the story in Mark chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, John is mending his nets with his brother James, and Jesus passes the boat, passes by, and invites him to follow him. Learn at the dust of the feet of the rabbi, yes? Think about the disciples' calling I just explained. That phrase, learn at the dust of his feet, comes from following behind the rabbi as he walked and sitting at the dust of his feet while he taught. Make sense? The next three years were a whirlwind. He learned from the greatest teacher in history, and his companions would be the future apostles of the church and his closest buds. Think about it now. He would walk along with the dust coming off the sandals of the very Son of God. Very few bat in the league of the Apostle John. Much has happened in John's life since those days when he was the Messiah's traveling companion. Over the years, John had become a beloved father of the entire early church. He witnessed and performed astounding miracles. He preached countless sermons, and he lived in abandon for King Jesus. Basic understanding of the early church alongside tradition claims, it would be kind of obvious he served some substantial time at the church in Ephesus. So as John sees his time tick away to old age, we can easily make some assumptions about John's life. First of all, he would have received word on ten different occasions that one of his fellow disciples has been murdered. Think about that. Along with them, great saints such as Stephen or James, the brother of Jesus, even getting word that the mighty Apostle Paul had met a horrible death in Christ's service. Now John is an old man, and he's the last one standing, the only one of the original apostles that remains. So eventually, the authorities then come for him. Now, at this point, we're under the emperor Diocletian. Now, pressure was mounted against the church. It wasn't quite the flaming fires of Nero, but it wasn't far from it. And John is probably in his 80s or close to 90 years old when he is exiled on the island of Patmos, 60 miles southwest of Ephesus. There he waited, not only to learn of his own fate, but also to hear the news of all the churches. No doubt this guy's life worked, yeah? So as Revelation chapter 1 kicks off, I'm guessing John's probably praying on the Lord's Day, most likely, just based on what we know of the apostle. He's probably, I would guess, interceding for Christians by name who are in danger of persecution by the Roman authorities. Maybe he even wondered if the churches would faithfully withstand the evil onslaught that loomed. Remember, I told you in the second letter of Timothy from the Apostle Paul as he was learning about the work in Ephesus. 
and we're going to get to what Jesus actually says in our text about the church in Ephesus, but first you need to know what happened prior to Jesus telling John to write to the seven churches. Prior to him telling him to write to the seven churches, first, John is startled by a loud voice. They say it's like a voice of a trumpet in Revelation 1.10. And then he turns to see who is speaking. And this is what he saw. And as we read this, I want to remind you, this is the Christ we serve. Even in human flesh, I don't believe Jesus had the appearance of a wimpy guy. But I can tell you the glorified body of Jesus. Look, if this doesn't wake you up and make you understand who it is that bought you, there's little else in Scripture that can reveal to you what could and should get you fired up more than this passage. Let's look at it. Revelation 1, 12 through 18. It's a pretext to our text today. This is John's first sight of the glorified Christ. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have, Jesus says, the glorified Christ has, the keys to death and Hades. Wow. The one whom Jesus loved, our guy John, who's probably lived a life that is so incredible we can't even put it into words, is laid out stone cold in shock at the sight of the glorified Christ. That's who we pray to. This is no weak-wristed, make-believe Jesus who esteems you in your sin as so many fake Christians are trying to sell us in the culture we live in. Oh no, this is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And if you read the next few verses, you will see that the lampstands and the stars, seven each. Lampstands equal the seven churches, and the stars, they equal the angels of the seven churches. And in our text today is the first of seven straight-up messages from our king that was to be both inspiring and pointing out how the church was missing their purpose. John had a relationship with all seven churches, and now he's going to write to them. And the glorified Jesus is going to drop some huge dimes on each one of them. But today we're going to take a look at the church in Ephesus. So our text today is Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Let's look at it. I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Let's get a stretch in. And you're like, is he starting the message now? He's been talking for 10 minutes already. No. It's all planned. I read in Jesus' name. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Please be seated. I hope from this reading, you will see that Jesus has something to say to those of us in the church all throughout history. But he specifically starts with Ephesus. And I think there are good reasons for this. It has been said that maybe, maybe the church in Jerusalem had received from God as much as the church in Ephesus. But make no mistake about it. The church at Ephesus received much from the Lord. Think about it. The apostle Paul had established it in Acts 18. Paul spent three years preaching and teaching in Acts 19. And in Acts 20, 31, let's show that one. I just want you to see this. Paul told us some about this time there. He said, for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So God did some powerful stuff there. Paul casted out demons, performed other miracles. It's all there. Read it in the book of Acts. But in addition to Paul, Ephesus had other big deal Christians there too. Apollos, the famed orator, preached in that city, as did Priscilla and Aquila. Same for Silas, Luke, Tychius, Timothy, and John. And those are the scripture references for that right there if you're taking notes. Because apparently I say them too fast. And that's why Mondays are becoming more and more fun. By the way, if you don't know, Mondays at noon, 1215 I'll meet anybody in here. We'll have lunch together and go through all these scriptures together. It's just a fun Bible reading, 12.15 every Monday. If you're like, well, I'm at my office. I'm having lunch. I could, I could zoom in. We'll, we'll put a Zoom together for you if you want. You just got to let us know. Look, why is it important to see how much Ephesus has been given? Because it's what Jesus laid out for us. He did so in Luke 12.48. Let's look at it. Everyone to whom... Much is given, of much of him will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. See, when churches are given much, much is required in return. God obviously had a special purpose for the Ephesians. Now, think about it. Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire. It had an awesome seaport. It was the hub for international trade. It could also brag one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was a temple to Artemis. You can get that story in Acts 19, 21 through 41. But anyway, this is a major center of pagan idolatry, which dominated the loyalty of its citizens. Now get this. In the city, they also built a temple to the current emperor Diocletian. This would motivate the Ephesians now to prove their loyalty to the Roman Empire and its design. Now, even if this involves persecuting the church. So you can see from historical commerce perspective, the popular thinking was predisposed into kissing the emperor's ring. 
For those of you who thought I was going to say something else, let the record show I said ring. So the Roman culture was everywhere. Look, Ephesus was an easy target for persecution. Also, I could have shared this with you before, but from Ephesus, you could easily travel throughout the province of Asia. So clearly, this is a strategic, if not the strategic location for spreading the gospel. And as you would expect, for such a solid spiritual foundation with both Paul and John serving there, and all the ones I listed before, the Christians at Ephesus did many things well. Don't lose that point. They did a lot of really good stuff. They tested those who called themselves apostles and exposed those who were fakers. You see that in verse 2 of our text today. They were instructed by three awesome teachers, uh, you know, Paul, Timothy, and John, and, and many more. Their doctrine remained solid and sound, and we hear that directly from the Lord. This is awesome. Jesus is also very glad that they refused to tolerate evil. Our glorified Christ is glad when we refuse to tolerate evil. Understand that, Christians, in 2023. See, they also despise the heretical teaching, teachings of the Nicolaitans. So what do we know about the Nicolaitans? Who are these cats? What do we know? Well, let me share with you. There are several lines of speculation, and that's what it is, is speculation, as to who the Nicolaitans were, but no concrete evidence. But there are some solid, solid uh, educated evaluations. I'll share a couple of them with you. It does seem that they were an early Christian sect of whom both John and the church at Ephesus and the Lord Jesus himself obviously disapproved of, right? Disapproved of them. They obviously didn't last that long either because it's really hard to find any concrete, you know, this is exactly who they were. But it's the commonly held view is that they were followers of Nicholas, a convert from Antioch, and he's mentioned with Stephen, as well as others, as being one of the first leaders of the early church in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And according to this hypothesis, Nicholas went his own way, leading a Christian sect that was given over to false doctrine and immoral behavior. And a lot of equivalencies are made that they merged early church teaching into Balaam or Baal worship. You might know it as Baal worship, depending on the pronunciation in Iowa. Much of that is based on the fact that they approached, uh, you know, they, they approached and approved the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Second, church, uh, second century church leader, Arrhenius, combines these views. Now, I believe him because he lived as close to, to that time as anybody that actually has documents that lasted that long. That's outside of Scripture. But he said the Nicolaitans are followers that lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the text today by the glorified Christ himself. Now, most scholars feel this group had a matter of indifference to the practice of sin, specifically that of adultery, along with the, the meat to idols deal. Others have read this as an untranslated Greek word. Now here we're going to shift gears to the other hypotheses. Some say it's just an untranslated Greek word meaning rulers over the people. And they say that the Nicolaitans were actually church leaders who imposed an unbiblical hierarchical order or a chain of command, if you will, and then sought to lord their position over their constituents, like with a pecking order. 
Now, if this is the meaning of the Nicolaitans, I'm okay with it, because it would shadow the reality of the hierarchical church that followed centuries later that, quite frankly, were then and are now appalling, if you want to know the glorified Christ. If you want to have just religious practice, do, do whatever you want. But for those of us who want to know the glorified Christ, be his disciples and have his character, we don't want that kind of church. Either way, the Lord says Ephesus hated it and hated the work, and Jesus said, here it is, Jesus said he hated it as well. And that word is translated correctly. Well, Jesus can't hate, I guess again. Think on that for a minute. So, what we know or can gather from all sources is that the Nicolaitans were full of themselves eating food that they shouldn't eat, living in adultery, encouraging fake worship of Jesus, when in fact they're actually worshiping themselves. They also rejected the creation. Other research says they gave credit to the creation to other powers. So what Jesus hates about the Nicolaitans is their claim that they follow him. That's what he hated about it. They, they claim they followed Jesus, but they live contrary to his teachings. They followed false doctrines or versions of his truth. Now listen now, all while believing they had been saved in his name by his blood and were eternally secure by his grace. And yet Jesus says he hates them. You know, Jesus mentioned similar people in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It's not going to be on the screen, but you can look it up later. Most of us know it. These folks don't understand why they have been denied entering the kingdom of heaven. Would it be wise of us to look into this and find out, are we actually of the faith? The Bible tells us to do that. That's all we're doing today through the church of Ephesus. See, they were denied entering the kingdom. Claiming they had prophesied, they had cast out demons and done many wonderful works in his name, but Jesus rejects them, saying he never knew them and demands that they depart from him. Coldest words in all of human history right there. If Jesus looks at anyone and says, step off, I don't know who you are. Now stay with me now. The church at Ephesus continued to labor, to persevere, to endure trials, and even watched the esteemed apostle John arrested. So for the most part, the church's behavior was outstanding. So when you start reading this first part, if you're a part of that church, you probably feel a little bit pleased, a little bit blessed, a little bit gratified that the king would commend them for so many awesome behaviors that had probably cost them so much. But then Jesus declared, but this I have against you. It's pretty brutal. Christ pulls no punches in his evaluation of the church or the individual, but stop and think about it now with who we're talking about. We are talking about the glorified Christ, Jesus, in his glorified body, talking about the churches. Do you think we can assume that he's going to tolerate our sin as long as the majority of our activities are praiseworthy? This is what the visible church is trying to sell our culture today. It just doesn't fly with Jesus. And Jesus himself tells us so. If he's our king and our Lord, you think we might want to listen. What made the transgression of the Ephesian church so awful was the nature of their sin. It's found in verse 4 of our text. You abandon the love you had at first. 
Christ had called the Ephesian church into a personal loving relationship with himself. Nothing is more important than that. They only had one big downfall. Just picture like, a, like one bad blemish on an otherwise beautiful face. One sin negated everything that was praiseworthy, for they had forgot what was most important. In their motivation to do so much, so much good doctrine, so much morally strong behavior, tons of zeal, their hearts had shifted from the Savior. They were still working for Christ, but they became no longer devoted to him as they once had been. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to give you a sidebar. This is why I don't care for the rapture theory. You got pre-trib, you got mid-trib, you got post-trib. I'm a pan-trib. It's all going to pan out the way Jesus wants it to anyway. But my problem with pre-tribulation rapture isn't the doctrine or the dogma. My problem is I've watched so many people take their eyes off the glorified Christ and focus on a rapture. Yeah, it might be bad for y'all, but I'm going to get raptured out of here anyway. No, it might get bad for y'all, but I got Jesus Christ holding me in his grip off for all of eternity. So nothing, you know, these people went to their death. And we don't even want somebody to talk bad about us. It's going to get rough. And when it does, those of us who know the glorified Christ will hold on to him whether a rapture happens that day or not. Many days when, when Israel was being attacked, that day I cried out to God, Lord, come for us today. But if not, we will serve you. The Hebrew children, the three Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3, look that up later. I'm way in the ditch. Let me get back to my notes. They had overlooked the most, part, the most important part of all, the mandate of all, to love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Mark 12.30, if you want to look it up later. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and that's so hard to do. Christ's response to the church that is losing authentic love was decisive. Let's look at verse 5 of our text. Let's put it back up there. I just want you to see it. Remember that how far you have fallen and repent and do the work you did at first. Otherwise, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus' declaration really appears harsh to us in soft America in 2023. I mean, after all, the churches was doing pretty much generally outstanding, right? Right? But learn this. Learn this from the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus will not tolerate a church that forgets its purpose. Our church, uh, a church that forfeits its highest calling, is in danger. Not only of losing its way, but more importantly, suffering God's judgment. That's what we want to combat, is we don't want God's judgment. I don't care what you say, I care what He says. Do you see it? The church in Ephesus didn't have any time to lose. It needed to wholeheartedly return to the Lord. This is clearly one of the most influential churches in the history of the world. And if they can lose their way, then that means any average Bible church in America can lose its way as well. And I've spoken in a bunch of them. Let me give you an example from Af African Missionary Service. We're told that one out of every convert a Christian sees in missionary, a Muslim will see ten. And that's been going on for decades. But I'm going to share with you a quote from 1970. 
It's a missionary sending organization uh, head, and this is the quote. Many places they win 10 converts to our one. Well, we say, I cannot understand that. And they said to us, the reason is very simple, very plain. These native Africans, with all the things that go with it, they find it easy to transfer from their pagan heathen worship to their Muslim worship without having to change much of life whatsoever. So they flock to the Muslim church for their pagan heathen ways, for it involves and entails no change whatsoever, end quote. That's the identical thing that's happened to the attenders and members of the great seeker churches in America. And the now apostate visible church, that's what happens. Where can I find a church where I can belong and keep all my worldly habits and follow all my worldly affinities and, and, and predispositions? Is there one? And Satan comes in and tips his cap and says, oh yes, I have one. Come, look. See the building? Look, there's even a cross. Oh, there, there's a little folding of the hands. Look at the beautiful presentations. It's very spiritual. There are rituals and there are beautiful ceremonies. Look, come just as you are, dirt and all, worldliness is all. Come and join us and then go out as a respectable church attender and say, I belong to the church. What's wrong with that statement? Four things. There's nothing about repentance. There's nothing about change. There's nothing about regeneration. And there's nothing about the power of God. There's nothing about repentance. There's nothing about change. There's nothing about regeneration. And there's nothing about the power of God. Have you seen and felt and witnessed the power of God moving right in your face? When you have, it changes you forever. I want to show you 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 as we close today. It says this, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people doesn't say you have to reject them, just you avoid them. Here at Fresh Encounter Church, we say in this church, come as you are, dirt and all, worldliness and all, and we will share with you what the power of God is. We will share it straight up and without apology. Where's the power of God? The power of God is found in the cross. The power of God is in Jesus' death on the cross after living a perfect life. A death he could have stopped, but he did it willingly as the sacrificial lamb. And then victory over death, hell, and the grave with the resurrection. We will always, as long as I'm pastor here, preach the power of God found at the cross. Then you can leave changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would continue to mold our purpose out of those things. And may we give you glory, Lord. And as we make disciples, let us do so biblically to make them into your image and your character. And Lord, let us be a blessing to our community in ways that we don't even know yet, things that we can't even see. Lord Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and praise you. And if anyone here needs that regeneration, they need that resurrection in their heart, let them come to the foot of the cross and talk to you. And before I say amen, I'll just share with you 
I will meet with any one of you anytime. And I mean that from the bottom of my life. If you want to be introduced to Jesus, I'll introduce him to you. There's also a dozen people that I can see in this audience that can do the same thing. And we're glad you're here. Jesus, we ask all this in your precious name today. Let us worship you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of my husband, Chris Danielson. BibleIdiots.com is still the website for this show, but we have grown. The new parent ministry is found at FreshRoadMedia.com. We would love to have you join us on our sister broadcast, a talk show that walks out Christian living and Bible apologetics entitled No Apology with Emily and Chris a weekly download from freshroadmedia.com. Both broadcasts are listener-supported, and we would love to have you join us as the Lord leads. I'm Emily Danielson, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And may you see the blessings of the Lord as you go and serve your King.